Welcome to the Family Alpha Podcast, a place where men, families, and the truth have a voice. The information shared on this podcast is meant to be applied. Now, here is your host, Zach Small, founder of thefamilyalpha.com and co-founder of thefraternityofexcellence.com. Let's get to work. Welcome to another episode of the Family Alpha Podcast. Today, I am joined by a special guest, Jack Murphy. Jack Murphy's resume is quite lengthy, so we're going to dive right into it and let the man talk about each of those points himself, kind of explain himself to the audience for those who don't know. But Jack, I really wanted to get him on because of recent events that are going on, and it's been cool. I say my special guest almost every time somebody comes on this podcast, but I've been able to watch this man in real time do the things he's been talking about for years now. So Jack is the founder of the Liminal Order, a private group of men who are really changing the political landscape. He is the author of the best-selling Democrat to Deplorable. He is the founder of the blog and podcast, Jack Mur- Murphy Live, who's had names such as Michael Anton, uh, Joe Norman, Bronze Age Pervert. I think you had delicious tacos as well. I mean, this guy, he's been talking to everybody. And most recently, he's been saving senators from getting you know thrashed around by the mobs. So Jack, <laughs> welcome to the Family Alpha Podcast. And for those who may not know, give them a little bit more about you that I didn't cover there. Oh, I think you really covered it. You nailed it. We're done. No, let's wrap it up. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Uh, Zach. uh, It is great to see you. Uh, I know it's been a little bit since we've been able to hang out in person, but this will will have to do for a second. Um, I appreciate it. Thanks for the introduction. Yeah, man. uh, Those are all the things. Liminal Order, Democrats are deplorable, Jack Murphy Live, the podcast. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Jack Murphy Live if you're wondering. Also, Jack Murphy Live everywhere, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, everything. Uh, yeah, man. So, you know, I started off like you did, dude, just sort of writing as a hobby, right? Just sort of blogging and, and tweeting and getting involved in the man stuff online. And, and one thing led to another, and it just kept building on itself. And then as the world would turn, my life got wrapped up in current events, Uh, When in 2018, as I was working still in education, I used to run charter schools and I was working as a regulator at that time. I was still blogging and I was, you know, under a pen name and I was working in a sort of normie straight position and uh, Antifa, these terrorists running around the country right now, they decided that they wanted to attack me. And so they, they like uh, tried to figure out who I was and they did and they doxed me to my employer, called me a Nazi and all kinds of terrible things and actually got me fired, got me fired from my job. So I was like a, a victim of an Antifa intelligence network swarm where they decided that they, they all use their resources to backtrace my photos and match me up in my real life world and hunt me down at my employer and they did. But instead of just letting them crush me, I decided to fight back and that's led me to this point here today. So I finished up the book, Democrats are Deplorable, published that, did a book tour, traveled around the country, talked to universities, even went to Evergreen State College out there in uh, Washington State, home capital of Antifa and the craziness. Uh, and then I started the liminal order, which was sort of a response to um, all this, you know, political nonsense that's going on. And then along the way, I started doing street reporting, uh, you know, live streaming out there in the ground in the middle of the riots here in Washington, D.C. And uh, since then, things have just been going crazy, man. Uh, been been on Tim Pool's show a few times, getting ready to do the Rubin Report. 
and uh, all the things that I started writing about and all the things we, we talked about, you and me and all the guys in the Manosphere years ago, all those things are now national stories, man. This is this, uh, our little niche, and I can't say niche, I just can't bring myself to do it. Our little niche uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the internet has now become sort of like ground zero. You know, we've been on top of all these issues since day one, and here they are now national stories and affecting everybody. You know, as I'm watching it play out, it really did stand out to me how we were kind of on the forefront of this, having these discussions, having these conversations on local, what's going on here? And this group is growing. And what happens if they start to, you know, kind of pop off and get a little more brazen? And it was well before anybody knew what Antifa was. And so my, my podcast is primarily focused, you know, around families, you know, being authentic. So bringing you in, it's sort of not off topic, but you know, there are a lot of listeners who don't even know what Antifa is. So right. you want to break down like, what is Antifa? You know, what are you talking about when it comes to this, this group that doxed and swatted your ass? <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, I'm, I appreciate that and your perspective. And that's, and that's interestingly where I came from too, right? It's like writing about family issues and fatherhood and how to be a good dad. You know, some of the, the biggest, most active threads and articles that I had a few years ago were all about fatherhood. And uh, in fact, you know, one of the ways that my Twitter audience really exploded was just by documenting my experience that I had with my son and with my ex-wife and with Little League. And, you know, I used to coach Little League and spend a lot of time doing youth sports and stuff. And so uh, all those things are, you know, important to me. And that's how I got my start in this. So the fact that I got tied up with Antifa, which is short for anti-fascist, which is a lie, they're actually the fascists. Uh, getting caught up with Antifa was not anything I ever intended, right? So simply because I was interested in these issues around masculinity and fatherhood and healthy living and, and strong families, um, it naturally made me gravitate towards the right side of politics. Uh, you know, and I supported Donald Trump in 2016 because I saw him as a champion of masculinity versus you know, the, the soyification feminization of America, which is destroying manhood and our families. So the election became an easy decision. Uh, There's no way I was going to support, support Hillary Clinton, the queen of feminism, to bring even more anti-masculine attitudes into the federal government. So Donald Trump was the only choice if you were actually someone who believed in a strong family. And so getting caught up with them was a was an accident. It was a byproduct. They came after me. I had I never set out to get involved with Antifa, which is basically like a collection of if you see their faces, they're just like d- degenerate anarchists who have no families and no homes and no businesses and nothing that they've built. It's therefore they have nothing to protect. And so they get caught up in this ideology that's now fused with race theory and intersectionality, which are which are sort of perspectives and ideas that, uh, you know, say that white men are the center of the evil of all the universe and that all suffering is a direct result of systems of white oppression that are built by the patriarchy. So that's what they believe, right? They believe that white, strong white dudes that built America and through families and farms and communities, that those same straight white dudes are also the same people who are oppressing everybody in the whole wide world. And so they need to be destroyed. They need to be destroyed. And so that's how you can be a guy studying and working with masculine issues and hanging out with dudes, just trying to help dudes become better fathers and and better friends to each other and better leaders in the world. 
That's how you can focus on family life and then end up as a political football or, you know, in the football arena of politics where, you know, it's like uh, the world's now divided into people that believe in strong men and strong families and strong communities and people who believe that they need to, quote, disrupt the nuclear family. And that's a stated goal <clears throat> of Black Lives Matter right on their website, right on their, <clears throat> excuse me, right on their, uh, you know, about us page. It says that they wish to disrupt the narratives that say that the nuclear family is the most important and the best way to get things done. And so, you know, there's basically a clash of civilizations happening, you know, people's perspective. It's not just politics anymore, sadly. It's not just like varying degrees of, you know, how do we do healthcare the right way? Or, you know, should we raise taxes 2% or lower than 3%? It's not, it's not arguments like that now. Now the dividing side is really between like, do you believe in a structured orderly society that's, you know, centered around strong male leadership or do you believe that we need to disrupt the family unit so that everybody has to depend on the group or the state? And, uh, you know, down that road there is where evil lies. And we've seen that play out all across history, whether it's in the Soviet Union or in China or in uh, Southeast Asia or in South America or wherever, whenever everybody is starting to depend on the state instead of their individual perspective, you know, bad things happen. So we're at a point now where if you're a family man and if you think that you being a strong dad for your kids is important, then you're on, you're on this side and the people that hate that are on the other side. And simply by just talking about dad issues, it's now like a, of the forefront of our culture and civilizational war as weird as that is. You know, I, I kind of want to bring that back just a little bit. It's important that we realize, you know, wars begin in the minds of men. You know, it starts up here and then from there you go on and then you execute. This is a mental, like, I still believe we're in the phase where it's a war of the minds. And it's interesting as you're saying that <clears throat> I was telling you before we started recording, you know, uh, my son and I, we're going to fly down and see you down in DC because I wanted to take a little man trip, man getaway. And then I saw all the chaos and I was like, all right, dude, like we're going to take a rain check. You know, I don't, I don't want to go down there and looking at that action of deciding I'm not going to travel because I'm trying to keep my family intact and I'm afraid of, you know, getting caught up in the wrong protest or preventable pain being experienced. Is that giving them ground? Was that giving yeah. an inch saying, all right, I'm not going to travel because I'm afraid of what could happen to myself and my son. That's mental. They beat me on that one. It, but mm -hmm. a lot of family men are seeing, well, I don't need to argue about what's happening in the school or I'm not going to stand up to what's happening in my community. You know, I was recently banned from my town's engagement page because I refused to support Black Lives Matter. Mm. And it's actually, I used the term black person instead of African-American, which is a personal hill I will not, it drives me insane because not everybody's from Africa. They don't have, you know, monopoly on all black people. It's not all Africa, whatever. <laughs> personal grapes aside, how are you seeing this play out? What are family men supposed to do? Yeah. You know, the schools are changing an inch, you know? They're not taking a mile. They're not saying, all right, well, these kids are going here and those kids are going, they're just saying, oh, we're going to teach this one thing a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's such a, <clears throat> such a good point. And hold on one sec. That's such a good point. And it's something that I have been dealing with myself, right? So you're right. It is, there is a mental, a mental component to this and, you know, wars are fought on a mental, moral and physical level. And right now the physical level is what you see in the streets with the riots and the, and the murder and in, in Portland and, 
the burning of the buildings and the street conflict, but the mental and the moral elements have been going on uh, for a while here. And on the mental side, I mean, dude, you're right. Like, why drive yourself into a situation which could be high conflict, right? So first of all, I would strongly encourage you to come to Washington DC to hang out with me anytime. Uh, the thing is, is like everything is shut right now. It's like, it's shut because of Corona. It's shut because of riots. There's, 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 there's most, most of the citywide shutdown is Corona, right? But like there are areas of town in which the riots are frequent and regular or, you know, protest riots, whatever. And I have to deal with the same issues myself. So just last night, okay, uh, Red Hen, my girl and I, we wanted to go out to dinner. So we're like, where should we go out to dinner? We've thought of a couple places in our neighborhood that we like, and they have outside seating. We've got the dog, and that's where you'd want to go, right? Corona times, dog, out summer, outside seating. That's what you want, right? But the protester riot groups have been going from the central riot zone into the neighborhoods now, into commercial neighborhoods, and accosting diners who are just sitting outside having dinner. And they, they did it just yesterday and the day before where they come like a mad squad of like 50 or 100 people. They rush up onto the sidewalk cafe. So they're right in your face. And they start screaming and yelling at you to put your, your fist up. And they say either put your fist up, you're with us, Black Lives Matter. And if you don't, then you're a white supremacist and now everybody knows it and you're okay with that. And so they like force you to have these purity tests. And if you don't comply, dude, they come across the barrier into the restaurant, into your face, corner you and scream at you until you do what they want you to do. And all this has been on video. This is not like conjecture or anything, right? It's happening in various neighborhoods in DC and it's growing. And I've seen it happen in New York as well and other places. And so in my mind, we're deciding where to go out to dinner. And we had just come from a double header of uh, club baseball with my son. And it was a great day. And it was Sunday afternoon. It's like 530. We got the dog. You know, we just want to have a chill day. So we decide we can't go out to dinner in our own neighborhood. Because what am I going to do? What am I, Jack Murphy, going to do? Like, I'm a vowed opponent of all this stuff. I work my ass off every day to fight it and every different level that I possibly can. I am a vigilante by nature. I am someone who's stubborn. And while I am generally not one to use aggressive techniques, if someone attacks me or my family, I will certainly go fucking bonkers. So I asked myself, what do I do? What would I do in a situation like that? If I'm out to dinner and a mob of people comes up to me in my neighborhood, in my town where I have lived and invested for 25 years, <clears throat> And they are demanding fealty to an organization that I know to be a Marxist terrorist organization that has ideas and goals that run contrary to the benefit of our country. What am I going to do if there's 50 people screaming at me demanding that I support their cause or they're going to assault me right there on the street? And to be honest, I don't know how I'd react. And I've tried to game this out so that I can be prepared for it if it and when it does happen. But Instead of doing that, we just decided to drive across town and go to a neighborhood where we didn't think that they were going to be. And the restaurant sucked and the vibe sucked and we hated it the whole time, basically. And I did feel, <clears throat> I did feel defeated a little bit, I'll be honest, uh, in the sense that they have literally driven me out of my own neighborhood and away from my local businesses and, and into places I don't want to go because I want to avoid conflict. Or at least I want to... <clears throat> 
I want to pick and choose at which point in time I have conflict with those people, right? And that was an opportunity for them to pick a conflict with me. And I didn't want to give that to them. So to answer your question, long way around. Yeah, dude, that, I think that's a victory for them. Uh, and it, it's, it's annoying and it's sad, but like, you know, I'm no massive military strategist or anything, but like, I think that there's a general idea that you should pick the time at which you engage with the enemy. Don't let the enemy, the pick in time that, that they engage with you. And also do it in a time in which you have an advantage. I would be at a distinct advantage sitting down, having a beer, relaxing with my fam when a mob would approach me and I'd be trapped in, pen, you know, penned in by a building and surrounded by people who are hostile to my ideas. Okay, so that's probably a good decision not to do it, but it still sucks. And I don't think I'm the only one with this feeling. And I know that people around the country are having similar feelings and they're annoyed and they're pissed and they're really feeling this sense of a breakdown of law and order in their city. And when you feel order peeling away and crumbling in front of you, you know you're on your way towards chaos and chaos is not where we feel good. And that's not where we want to be. So uh, it was tough and it's, you know, the, the, the mood is hangs over the city at all times. You know, clearly the city is not on fire in every quadrant at all times, right? It's just not. The protest zones are pretty concentrated. That said, it's unpredictable. So you never know where it's going to be and you never know what's going to happen. And that keeps you on edge. And, and that part does suck. It does. It really does. I got to be honest. I think it's that ground, which is bothering me the most. I feel somewhat unsettled because I'm, I'm a pretty confident individual. You know, and I also do the what if game, you know, well, what if this happens? What will I do? What if that happens? What would I do? You know, and I'm finding myself more and more like, well, I don't want to do exactly what you're saying. I'm not going to go to the city, you know, on, on the weekend nights. I'm not going to go over here because, you know, that's just, it could be shady. Something could pop off. You know, you're, it's, you're more in the heart of it. I'm in Rhode Island, you know, but things are getting weird here. And that's when I knew this was somewhat of an issue. <laughs> when something happens in Rhode Island, I'm like, whoa, why do we care? We're the, we're the smallest group. We've got the fewest people and here we are blocking highways and stuff. Like maybe I should pay attention to this. And I'm seeing more and more myself like, and I'm, I guarantee there are others in this boat. You're uncomfortable. Like, why all of a sudden as an American, am I questioning what I can and cannot do? Or if I'll get hurt, you know, we're not walking down the streets of like Ramadi. I shouldn't be right. worrying. There's something popping. This is America. This is, you know, like suburb America. And I see these families, you know, you, you spoke about them putting it on video. What if you do something, somebody gets in your face, you don't put your fist up, they throw your water and you punch them in the mouth. Are you, are you now in trouble because you defended yourself? Or will they say, oh, look, here's another white supremacist, you know, swinging at one of us peaceful protesters. Yeah. And you're like, well, I, tr that's the right thing to do on, on everything. But on video, you're doing the wrong thing. And there are people I think caught in this. Like there, there's the, the group, the group of men who are just confident. So I look at myself before the family, you know, fresh in the military, you put me and 10 of my relatively single, uh, sailor buddies, you know, we're young, we're strong, we're ready to go do something. We're like, fuck, like we're looking for a fight. Let's do it. Yeah. And then you kind of age out. Now you've got a family. Now you're questioning like, all right, I, well, I don't want to do this. I shouldn't, but I know what right looks like. Yeah. I know the example I want to set for my wife and children. I know we are an American. I want to show them like, we're not going to bow down to these oppressors. And then there's a group who's oblivious. Like, I just want to keep the peace. But if you're trying to keep the peace, you're just constantly giving up ground and yeah. ground and ground, afraid of conflict. And at some point, there will be conflict. And that is where I'm wondering, where, are we too far gone? You know, are, are, have we already given, like, all right, we're, we're going we're gonna to bend the knee to this as mass population and the one twosies, like you, you and myself who are writing about this, are we going to be the ones who are like, oh, those guys are just weird. 
they're just looking for a fight. You know, they are the white supremacists, even though you've done more work for all minority communities through your work with the charter schools and before them that completely erased. Like I watched that get erased from your life, which right. is to me to no end. Right. <clears throat> that's something that's been a, hold on one second. That's something that's continuously bothered me, which is all this work that I've done my whole life doesn't matter anymore. Right. Like Just I did, I, clean. Like, I spent how? 10 years, 10 years legitimately as executive director running charter schools turning around the worst performing charter schools in the city, charter schools that were 99.99% African-American. Everything I did for 10 years was dedicated towards improving the education outcomes of our most disadvantaged students in America, black kids in DC. And none of that matters, right? I'm still just some sort of white supremacist Nazi guy, even though 10 years of my life, a full quarter of my life, I spent helping kids in a way that I know for a fact I've done more than all those stupid fucking protesters wrapped up, put into one which is the other annoying part, but about the pressure you're talking about, there's constant pressure. They're, con they're constantly putting pressure on us and they're constantly making it so that we have to react so that they can act. And they're following, they're following the rules in this book, rules for radicals, okay? And in number 10, one of the rules is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. It is this unceasing pressure that results in the reactions from the opposition that are essential for the success of the campaign. It should be remembered not only that the action is in the reaction, but the action is itself the consequence of reaction and of reaction to the reaction ad infinitum. The constant pressure sustains action. That's their goal, dude. They're going to continue to push and push and push and push and try to provoke a reaction from you so that they can then escalate their pressure in a way that seems justified. And if you think that this is going to stop, if you think it's going to slow down, it is not. It is not going to slow down. They're following these guidebooks, and this is you know rules for radicals here. They're following this to the T, man. And the pressure is only going to continue to go up. Think about what's coming down the pike here. Not only is there the election and the inauguration, those whatever happens around those, whoever it is, there's going to be conflict. But then there's also coming up the George Floyd police officer case, the shooting. They're going to get off because they were overcharged. Right. So that's like a setup for another just set of explosive riots. What about when Kyle Rittenhouse gets off for self-defense? I studied that and watched that so intently, man. I know I, I saw the whole night. I watched it live stream. I put it all together. We did a ton of research. That was all self-defense. What happens when he gets off? Right. Like there are checkpoints coming up where the pressure is going to be ratcheted up. And I've even just seen it in street, street conflict, right? They, if there's a line of police officers standing there doing nothing, they go up to the police officers and provoke a reaction out of them. Then they get a reaction, then they can double down and then they get even more and then they film it and then they broadcast it and then they present a perspective on the world that may or may not necessarily be true. So if you feel that pressure, it's real and it's by design and it's going to increase, which is the sad part. So what do you do about that? Right. And that's, and that's where, you know, for you, I know uh, the fraternity of excellence comes in. That's where the limo order comes in. And that's why our men's issues stuff is so salient today is because the answer to all of this is to become a strong, independent, you know, auto-regulating, 
individualist male who knows that it's his strength and his fortitude and his attitude and his perspective that are going to lay the foundation for a healthy family that can resist this stuff as well. And then when you get enough healthy families together, then you have a healthy community and that community can resist it as well. And if you get enough of those communities together, hopefully you can build a nation out of that. But even in, before we get to that point, you know, in the short term, the way that you fight against it is, man, first of all, you got to get your ass in the gym, right? And it sounds so weird and trite, but it's true. You have to build your personal integrity on a number of levels in order to be able to withstand this. You have to be physically strong, mentally strong, emotionally strong, spiritually strong. And I know that's what you like to do or that's what you're working on. It's your mission every day. Same with me. And uh, you can see how it starts at the squat rack. It continues with a healthy diet, lots of sleep, meditation, community service, working with your children, giving back to the people around you that deserve it. <laughs> and even the ones that don't sometimes. These are the ways that you build a resistance to these kind of pressures. And that's why they specifically target the nuclear family, because they know that if they can disrupt the nuclear family, then they can break the, the, these targets down into smaller units, weaker units that they can just chew up and, and digest and, and cast aside. So the pressure's on, man, and it's coming everywhere. It's coming everywhere. I don't know how far you want me to rant, but like, dude, it's coming mentally and emotionally as well through your schools even. So you mentioned that, right? So what do you do? How do you fight back? Yeah, first you have to become aware. Critical race theory is a, is is a science, not even science. It's a religion rather. It is not science. Strike that. It's early. Sorry, guys. It is a religion that has taken over all of our institutions, including education, including K to twelve, to the point now where PTAs are sending home book lists that have white fragility and anti-racist on that is recommended reading for parents and, and, and students. It's to the point where I'm getting notices from my school that they're hosting struggle sessions with my kid that will not be uh, where I can't even observe it. They've banned me from observing a struggle session that's based on critical race theory, where the premise of the conversation is to exp explore your whiteness and be comfortable being uncomfortable. That is right out of their textbook of like how you move people from, from, from A to Z, where A is a healthy, independent, free-thinking individual, to Z, which is a completely sort of enslaved, broken down, you know, weak person who believes that they're flawed and there's nothing that they can do uh, but repent and join this cause and swear fealty. So it's happening everywhere. And what do you do? You have to start fighting back on a small level. I strongly suggest not fighting back in the street. You never know what's going to happen there. You don't know. These people are professionals, right? There was a coordinated murder in Portland by Antifa on a Trump supporter. They stalked him and they killed him. A team of people. There's no question. It's on video. And the guy knew he did it too. That's why instead of getting arrested, he went down in a blaze of his own glory, right? He suicided by cop. Don't do it in the street, guys. The way to do it is first at the dinner table. That's where you start. You start at the dinner table and in the squat rack and you teach your kids what's right and wrong and you teach them what to be on the lookout for when they're at school and in the community and on YouTube and whatever. Code words and, and secret messages. You, know, you just give them the idea of what, what's out there so that when they start to get this data, they can put it through the filter that you put in place, not that the school put in place. 
But beyond the squat rack and the dinner table, the next thing to do is at the most micro level possible, go to your school board meetings, talk to your teacher, find out what they're teaching them, and then participate. Because as James Lindsay, a guy who wrote Cynical Theory, his fantastic book about all this stuff, points out is that this is a tyranny of the minority, right? The majority of the country doesn't believe in this crap. The problem is, is that this powerful minority that has taken over our institutions in high leverage ways so that they can control the curricula, which then through a decision that's made by a small committee meeting of like five or seven people, they roll it out to a school district that has like hundreds of thousands of kids. So it's super high leverage and you got to find your way into those high leverage points. But you know, that comes with risks as well too. So don't be fooled. This is, this is not just, um, you know, a, a, a difference in discussion on, on school curricula. This is like a, a mental and emotional war that's being waged on your children. And those people are willing to go to battle for it. So you got to keep your eye on that, but start at the squat rack and the family dinner table, and then work your way out from there. And I truly believe that if you start with your personal strength and your personal integrity, uh, and a commitment to your values and a commitment to embody those values that uh, you will radiate strength outwards. Your family will feel it and your community will feel it as well. You know, I obviously completely agree. You know, it starts with the family, but I want to look at the flip side of that and sort of where do you see the leadership on the, the other side of this? You know, are, are there leaders of these little pockets of people protesting? You know, who, who are, are these leaders? You know, we've got the leaders of the family you know, the, the dad's leading the way, you know, the parents are setting the example for the kids. Who's setting the example for Antifa? Who are their leaders? Are they just re- citizens who are pissed? You know, you're saying they're degenerates, yet they're coordinating attacks. So they've got somebody yeah. who's either funneling the pocket or, or, or running this strategy. Somebody is making this an issue that can't just be crushed by a freaking bug. Look at this. They have a freaking handbook, dude. It's like Boy Scouts of America. You get a handbook. It teaches you what to do and why. Not kidding. Here it is. Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook. And when you combine it, I mean, I'm studying the enemy, right? When you combine these two, then you can see where the motivation comes from and the organization. But the thing is, is these are decentralized networks, okay? There's no president of Antifa. There's no central committee where you can just take out the leadership and the whole organization crumbles. No, they're, they're designed specifically to be decentralized so that they can operate independently. So it's like an idea that captures people and then they give, you know, folks write these handbooks and there's, there's funding networks and complete how to's on how to organize your affinity group and how, which is like the smallest unit in Antifa, your affinity group, people you're friends with and associate with how to organize that, how to organize protest, how to prehave at the protest, how to raise money, how to get out of bail or, you know, how to raise money to get out of jail. And there's a whole network of people that supports them. There's, there's lawyers that provide the stuff for free, you know, legal counsel, legal help. There's Kamala Harris, the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party, who's out there raising money for the bail funds for the Minnesota rioters. There are medics that go down on scene to help treat people at the riots. There are restaurants and churches that open their facilities as refuge to the protesters and rioters as they're walking around. There's business owners that are complicit in what they're doing and support it. So unfortunately, it's not as though you can just like call up the premier of the Soviet Union and negotiate with the whole country that way right? It's a decentralized insurgency, which makes it very difficult to fight, which means that we have to react as a nation, understanding it's a decentralized insurgency and fight it as such. 
And one of the big lessons that was learned in Iraq uh, and the development and, and formalization of fourth generation warfare and our occupation of Iraq was that using like overwhelming force to squash these decentralized insurgent groups doesn't help anything because you end up losing the moral and mental, mental elements uh, of the battlefield and the war. So it puts us all in sort of a tough position here. It's like we could roll, Trump could roll the National Guard in and just kill everybody and round them all up. But, you know, he's going to lose the bigger battle if you do it that way. So the, the, the response to an insurgency like this is counterinsurgency stuff, and it is a much more methodical and it's much more on a propaganda and mental level, which is why you see such constant struggle in the information space right now. Trump knows that. There are some guys in his administration that understand fourth generation warfare and understand this network insurgency because it's beyond even just fourth, fourth generation now. Now it's also combined with network tribalism. And you and I understand what that means because we've experienced it. But basically what it means is that online people are organizing and sorting themselves out according to their sort of empathy frame, which means if you see a picture of a, of a mob and they're, uh, you know, to us, they're accosting someone who's filming them. And then, but you, you look at that image and you're like, who do you have empathy for? Do you have empathy for the mob who's fighting against Black Lives Matter for Black Lives Matter? Do you have empathy for the person who's just trying to record it? And so based on your empathetic window of those events, we're sorting into tribes. So we've got online network tribalism combined with fourth generation warfare combined with this decentralized uh, insurgency that we're facing basically. And it makes for a very complicated complicated sort of milieu a complicated mix and it doesn't make the move forward you know sort like explicitly clear either i have been back and forth all summer long between like roll out the troops let them burn the city down like i don't i don't really know to be honest and the one thing that i do know for sure is that if you start here and build your strength outward, you can create a sphere of influence, of strength and comfort for your family. And that's just the, that, that's where I'm focused. And that's the number one thing that I'm doing at home. And I continue to urge everyone to do the same because this, this conflict is, is, is multi-year. It's going to, it's going to keep going for years still. It's been building for years. It's going to grow for years still. It's going to be the defining element of our, you know, sort of adulthood here, my, you know, our thirties and forties here. And uh, it's going to be a long battle. So you better be strong. So start there. You know, as I'm listening to that, there's, there's a part of me, like I can feel like the heart rate getting a little bit higher because I'm thinking of all the people who are caught off guard from this. You know, I don't know if I, I, you heard the story or I even shared it, but I think it was three years ago, maybe two years ago. I was fishing with my son and he was too close to the ocean. He went to cast, he stepped on the black algae. And like, I had literally just said, don't step there. And as a kid, he's like, oh, I got to throw far. I'm going to step there. I turn around to my daughter and I, I look back at him and he's gone. He fell down 20 feet of rocks into the ocean and is like starting to get sucked away. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like serious. This is not a, a amplified for, for theatrics and views and listen story. This is no shit. My kid almost died. I look back and my son's gone. Jackie's like, what the fuck? And I just let go, you know, that, 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 that instinct, I run down, I say run, I fell down these freaking rocks trying to get to him. I get to the bottom, I snatch him up. He's underwater. I get him overwater. Now I'm underwater. <laughs> I, I have like two fingers on this rock and it's like time stops for a second. And I'm like, all right, if either both of us are not coming out of this 
or both of us are coming out of this, <laughs> but I'm not leaving here without you. So I, I, I overhead press him and get him on the rock. He climbs out. We will survive happy ending to the story. And one of the things that I'll never not think of is what if I wasn't fast enough? What if I wasn't strong enough? You know, what if I wasn't mentally prepared, maybe not for that situation, but always ready. Like, Hey, if something happens, I need to act, you know, he would have died or I would have died trying to save him. And that's like, as a parent, you know, that, that sucks. Like even telling the story now, it sucks. And I'm thinking of all these parents who were looking at this, like, it's not going to happen to me. No riots are going to come to me. I'm never going to be in a situation where I've got to act. And, and not even just, you know, you're overweight. It's the mental aspect I'm worried about. There are people who, you know, the Revolutionary War, people are probably like, oh, these, these are just a bunch of like pissed off colonists. That's going to get crushed. Well, look how that turned out. If we turn a blind eye and let them keep growing and let them keep getting momentum, you know, if we keep saying, oh, it's, I don't need to worry about that yet. That's happening in DC. You know, that's that we're not worried about. Oh, it's, it's happening in, you know, Florida. That's happening in Oregon. You know, like, who cares? Portland. That's not near me. Yeah, but that's where it's happening <laughs> now. What yeah. about in, in a year from now? I mean, dude, that's a, that, that's a scary story that you related. And I'm really glad that you were able to spring into action and save your kid, you know, and that at once must have been terrifying. And then later, maybe rewarding, I think, to you, knowing that you were able to, to fend him and to protect him like that. And we all have that instinct inside of us. And we all need to we need to nurture it. We, we need to prevent it from being uh, uh, squashed and silenced. Right. Like critical race theory believes and they tell you that if you're uncomfortable during this conversation, that's your fault. And that means you're a racist. And they're teaching you and priming you to, to ignore your internal signals, right? You had an internal signal when your kid fell in the water, jump in, go get him, right? Didn't even think about it. Total just instinct, ball out, go get it. If you're in a situation that's uncomfortable and you're feeling uncomfortable and you're like, this is weird. And I get that sig- the signal inside of you, the anxiety, the stress, whatever, They're teaching you to ignore that. They're teaching your children to ignore that. That's grooming behavior. They're teaching you to ignore your instinct and your internal alert signals. And as a parent, that scares me and that troubles me big time because I teach my daughters and my son, if you're in a situation that feels uncomfortable, eject, go away. Like let's regroup and talk about it later. Do not just sit there and like learn how to tune out that alarm system. Okay. And I bring this up because when you say to parent, you say, you talk about parents that are are like, oh, that won't happen to me. Oh, that's in Washington, DC or whatever. Nobody. It's happening right now to you, to your family right now. Odds are, if you took a look into your curriculum at your school and and took a look into your teacher's perspectives and and ideologies, and you took a look into what information they're spreading into your kids' heads, that kind of shit that I just described about disabling your internal alarm systems, that kind of shit is already happening in our country, in, in our country, in our schools, red state, blue state, doesn't matter because most of the time the teachers unions and the teachers and the, and the education world is almost exclusively left-wing SJW critical race types. Okay. So red state, blue state, doesn't matter. This type of ideas and these, this, these, mental manipulations, emotional manipulations, these actually teaching your children to be mentally ill, right? Because teaching someone to disregard their internal alarm system is literally teaching someone to be mentally ill. Okay. Let's just make that perfectly clear. So if you think it's just the riots in DC or whatever, no, bro, those are the distraction, right? 
that's where you're supposed to be putting your attention so you can be like, oh, that's just Washington, D.C. That's not going to bother me here in freaking, you know, Wichita because that's Washington, D.C. And so you just look at it from a distance. You're like, oh, that conflict, that sucks. But then you just kind of go back to your life and you don't think that actually the, the other sort of element in this conflict, which is the mental part, which is also the moral part, is being waged on your kids, whether you're aware of it or not. I will never forget. And this really just hammered the point home for me. It was May, the night of May 30th, and I had been downtown in D.C., and it was the worst night of the riots all, all year in D.C. Arson everywhere, buildings burning, vandalism, destruction, you know, just liter- literally hordes of people running around, pulling up bricks out of the streets, smashing them through street windows, going into the stores, robbing places, setting fires to buildings, um, assaulting police officers, you know, like the whole thing. I got shot by a rubber bullet that night, like insane. Okay. The very next day I get an email from my school PTA with the list of books that my kids are supposed to read, including white fragility and anti-racist. Okay. Those are the worst of the worst books in this element. And right then I realized I'm still exhausted from the night before right? Like being in, in, uh, I wasn't in the military. So I use this, this phrase uh, as a, as a euphemism, but being in like a war zone, right? There's flashbangs going off. There's tear gas in the air. There's buildings burning around. There's cops being assaulted. People are being arrested. Like that's, that's the closest I've come to something like that, right? You get out of that, you get home and you're trying to relax and decompress after hours of tension. And then you get an email from the PTA that's all benign and everything. And it's just like, oh, you know, the Anti-Defamation League has suggested that you guys read these books. So we're going to pass these on to you and your kids. And we hope everyone can read these books and learn something from them, especially at this really, you know, juncture in our race discussions as a nation and whatever, whatever. And that's when you realize that it's like this is a comprehensive battle. This is something that's happening all around you all the time from every direction at your kids, through your email, in the school, in the street, burning buildings, in the government, like it's everywhere. And so as I'm feeling the effects of being in this riot and getting this email about their attack on my kid, it's when it all just really coalesced for me and understood that this is a total war conflict and they're coming at you from every direction and they will not rest and they will not stop. And if you're distracted by what's going on in D.C. or in Portland or Kenosha, maybe you're not seeing what's happening right under your nose in your local school district. And I think that's all part of the, the coordinated plan. And so keep your eyes open, guys. It's not, uh, it's not just me in the big cities. It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Sadly. Sadly. You know, to play on that theme, and this goes back to our discussion earlier in the podcast, where it begins in the mind. You know, wars begin in the minds of men. I'll never forget that quote. It was on a wall inside the Naval War College. It really stood out to me. And it's because of the truth there. You know, and dealing with the mind, you know, they're, they're trying to neuter our kids. They're, they're trying to get rid of, like you said, that instinct, the, the fight or flight, they're getting rid of the fight. Like yep. you either run away or bow down. Yep. You know, and you wrote a book. You wrote Democrats are Deplorable, a bestseller. And it, it showed how people can wake up and they can see, you know, the writing on the wall and they can make a change. And do you want to talk to sort of what drove you to writing that book as well as what you've learned from it? And is there anything you would change now that's been released? You see how mm. things played out after the fact, what would you change, you know, or add maybe to your yeah. writing? 
Yeah. So Democrats are deplorable came about as my, my experience of understanding all of these issues, right? Like, you know me, dude, I started writing in the manosphere and uh, red pill stuff. And, and I started pulling on threads after my, you know, well, let me back up. I got divorced in 2008 or nine and decided I need to figure out my life. Right. I tried to start dating again and like everything was all crazy and I didn't understand what was going on. So I start figuring it out. I start pulling on a thread and I pull on that thread and that thread has led me all the way to this spot right here. Right. So Democrat to deplorable is a book about transition. It's about me and it's about the seven people I interview and about the 1500 people I surveyed about their transition from voting for Obama and how, what that worldview and felt like to them, to the conflict and the trauma that requires or, or sort of fuels transformation. And then, you know, what is the result? And I, and I examine that from people's person, my personal experience, other people's personal experience. And then I put it into real context with real world events, real research, and then uh, theory and philosophy and sort of some speculation as well. But Everything that I outlined there, the battle against feminism, political correctness, the war on campus, you know, the racial issues, things like that, everything that I outlined in that book still holds true today. And in fact, is only all of it, everything has only gotten worse. All the trends I identified have only worsened. The conflict I identified has only worsened. And I, <laughs> I'll tell you, in the book, I even say it, this is a struggle for the for the future of Western civilization. And it it felt a little slightly hyperbolic at the time when I wrote it, but now I'm confirmed 100% that that's the truth. And so what we're, we're, the whole book is about people discovering, you know, that this is the case. And what would I add to it? You know, I talk about Black Lives Matter and Antifa in there. I talk about my experience with Antifa. Um, but what would I add? I would add a, a little bit more about the nature of networked insurgency and this this whole total war conflict that's happening to us right now and explain that for people so that they can put the pieces together and feel a little bit less crazy and then also understand how what they're facing is a coherent message that with with, with the real strategy uh and and it, it may appear random but it, it's not and so there's definitely another book coming um, after the election. I'm sure there will be, you know, I'll feel more comfortable deciding what direction to go after I see what happens. You know, we're still waiting for like that history to happen in the next few months here. Um, but the book continues to actually sell more and more every month. And, uh, you know, it started off great. And now, you know, I reached, I, I hit number four the other day uh, next to White Fragility this is how it went. White fragility, anti-racist, coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Haidt, and then Democrats are deplorable. Like the foremost, sort of the foremost relevant books, you know, for our time are right there all just in a row. And so I'm very proud of that. And I thank you everybody for the support. Um, go get it. It's on Amazon. It's an easy way to get introduced to me and to the content here. Um, you know, so there's another book coming, but you know, I have to wait to see what the next chapter in American uh, history is going to be before I can, before I can write it. And uh, I frankly don't know what's going to come, which is kind of scary as well, too, right? We all hate uncertainty. This is why Corona is killing, killing us as mentally as a nation. You can't plan for shit, right? Like I've been meaning to have a national convention for the liminal order for fucking nine months, and you can't, you know. So you can't plan, and you get stuck. And then when you get st you get stuck without being able to plan for the future. You look around and it seems like, and it is, law and order is, you know, disintegrating around us. Chaos is picking up. 
and the future is cloudy and you can't make plans and you don't know what to do and you don't know where you're going to be able to work or live or go to school and you see the people burning shit down in the streets, guys getting murdered, 30-some people have gotten killed in these riots this summer, okay? 30 or more, like 35, I think now. And, you know, it's an unsettling feeling. You know, we all feel it. And I, and I don't think it's bad to talk about. I think it's important to talk about so we can acknowledge, you know, this uncertainty and stress that people are feeling and then figure out ways to combat it. And, you know, as G.I. Joe said, knowing is half the battle, right? So to the extent that we can talk about it, it helps, it helps people identify because when you feel dissonance and discomfort and you don't know why that's the worst, man, you know, if you can, if you can put, put it on something, if you can identify the source of that anxiety, that really helps. Uh, But again, this all goes back to why, you you know, best thing you can do is squat, eat, sleep, be with your kids, donate your time and energy to a community, you know, service project, get outside yourself a little bit, but, you know, worry about your squats and, and your proteins and your families first. You know, I think a lot of people miss, they sort of overlook the foundational aspect of that. It's like, well, how can you talk about these things that nobody wants to talk about? Well, when you're secure in who you are, you know, your mind, your body, spirit, when that's all locked in, mm-hmm. you know, you're on the right path. You really don't care of the judgment that comes. Like you're going to talk about what needs to be discussed regardless of whether it's well-received or not, yeah. you know, just as you were saying that, I was thinking of people have asked me, well, why are you, so I'm 69 days sober, a strong number today. There you go. Like, why are you talking about sobriety? You know, you're supposed to be ashamed of that. I was like, no, like there are a lot of people who are ashamed of that and struggling. Let's talk about it. I recently shared a piece on uh, pedophilia and, and this, this onslaught against our kids. And they're like, well, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, no shit. It's uncomfortable. Now we got cuties being released and people are flipping out. I'm like, look, I, before this documentary, I was trying to bring this up. Like you need to be listening to your kids and making sure they're aware of what to look for. You know, these things, if you don't talk about them, that doesn't mean they go away. You know, and you're like a modern day, you know, Thomas Paine releasing common sense, like with Democrat to deplorable, you know, that's, that's a must read. Like people can really accelerate. All right, here's how we got here. Here's why we're here. And more uncomfortable than that, you know, that's more educational, but the uncomfortable aspect is, well, what are you going to do about it? And when I say you, I mean the reader. When you read that book and you're like, oh shit, here's where we are. All right, I'm glad you're armed with all that knowledge, but what are you going to do about it? And you've shown what Jack Murphy's going to do about it, hmm. you know, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. And I like to think that if and when my number is called, I'll show and, you know, what Zach's about and I'll stand my ground and, you know, do what I need to do. And it's, it's not something you can plan for. And that, that sort of actually brings me to one of the, the closing points. You recently found yourself, you know, guiding one of our senators. How did that come about? Because when I jumped on Twitter and I see Jack Murphy and Republican Senator, I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you ask yourself, how are you going to react to things and what are you going to do? And, and because Antifa doxed me in early 2018, uh, which seems like so long ago now, um, they drafted me basically into being a full-time culture warrior. And, you know, I got fired and I lost my job and I lost my career. So I had to figure something else out. And I did. And so now I'm basically just a full-time sort of battler, warrior in this. And I do it on a number of levels, right? I write books. I do long form podcasts. uh, I do interviews online with people. I do, you know, I tweet and I send messages and I also do street reporting, right? Oh, and not to mention limo order as well, grassroots organizing. And then, so now I started doing street reporting also. So like I said, I go out on the street, I document what's going on with the riots and, and just, just show the world what's happening because 
Where I am in those riots, there are no mainstream media, dude. That is for sure, right? So I get out there and I'm a vigilante, I guess, by heart. I mean, I always kind of have been, but I, I'm out there actually just documenting things. But then I see this night, okay? This was the night in question was the Republican National Convention was closing down. There was a ceremony at the White House and there was a ton of VIP guests at the White House that night. And after the ceremony was over, after the convention thing was over, I start to notice that, uh, you know, because I'm near the White House, I start to notice that there's like these people walking on the street that shouldn't be there. My first thing I noticed was like this super hot blonde chick in a nice dress and she walked by on the sidewalk and I was like, wait, what the? And I, I, I watch her walk by and, you know, I, I see every hot chick that walks by, but this case it stood out because she was wearing like an evening gown and everyone else around is in black with masks and helmet and fucking umbrellas. And She's at the prom. <laughs> yeah. And like, it was like that scene out of the matrix where that lady in red walks by and it's all you can notice, you know, in the crowd. And so I just noticed her and I didn't really pay much attention, but then I saw another group of people, older women in red evening gowns, men in suits. And I'm like, where the hell are you guys going? And they're like, Oh, we're trying to get to our hotel over here. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't go down there. There's like a mob, literally a mob down there that had just assaulted an officer. They're just looking for things to get, you know, to, to assault and get mad at. So I start guiding people away from the mob and guiding them from the white house to their hotels. And by guide, I mean, like, I'd say, no, you can't go down there. Go, you know, just give them the directions. Right. And then I go back to doing my thing, observing the mob and, and streaming. And then I see another group like that. Okay. And then another group like that. I'm like, okay. So it's very clear that the, the police department is not trying to secure the safe passage of these guests coming away from the White House. So I, I really started to keep my eye on it. And I positioned myself in a way where I could be of most assistance to the people coming out of the White House and get them to their, their hotels without being assaulted or harassed. And I do that a few times throughout the night. And then things are winding down and I'm getting ready to leave. And I, I walk a couple of blocks away from the zone there. And then I see this really small guy in a suit. And I'm like, is that fucking Rand Paul? And it was, it was Rand Paul, senior Senator from Kentucky, top ranking Senate, you know, member Rand Paul. So I go up to him and I'm like, sir, you cannot be here. You cannot go this way. There's a mob of people over there that I've just watched harass people of all kinds throughout the night, getting back to their hotels, even assaulting them. I'm like, do we have to get you to safety? And so I look around and there's like one cop and I run up and I grab him and I guide the senator and his wife and his, his two female companions, older ladies. There's a four of them. I guide them and get them to the one cop. The one cop stands in front of them and sort of like protects them, radios in for support. And this is when I start streaming now because I went to help them. And then when I gathered myself, I was like, all right, let me stream this. So then I start streaming. And then at all the things happen all at once. The mob finds them. Uh, you know, the, all the other streamer guys run up and all of a sudden there's just a huge scene and it's just Rand Paul and his companions behind one police officer with like 50 people screaming, yelling, shoving, jostling, whatever. About 15 minutes goes by and finally the cops show up. They've got like a bike brigade that's mobile to get around to these flashpoints and like 30 or 40 cops show up and then they, they, they struggle to get them basically across one block to the, to their, 
uh, hotel. And in the midst, you know, Rand Paul got assaulted. You know, they're shoving people. Rand got pushed. The woman got pushed so hard. Her shoe came off. They didn't let her pick it up. They grab her shoe. This is like a 60-year-old woman. They grab her shoe. They're like waving it in her face. And uh, they like throwing their shoes away. It's all very demeaning and demoralizing and angry and violent. It felt a little bit like when Cersei was like walking, you know, had her walk of shame in Game of Thrones, even though these are the good guys, you know, more or less. And, uh, you know, Rand Paul, they make it without getting, you know, too, too injured or anything, but uh, it was definitely a mob scene. And without the police there, they would have had a much larger issue. And uh, I happened to stream it. That went bonkers. We did probably millions of views on that. And uh, the next day, Rand Paul goes on Fox and writes an op-ed and you know, I'm really um, grateful and honored that he chose to single me out. But he said, uh, you know, we were um, assisted by a helpful observer is what he called me. A helpful observer named Jack Murphy, who had been out assisting people all night in, a very, in the same way. And so uh, he thanked me and acknowledged my work and, and acknowledged me, you know, helping folks throughout the night. And uh, it was a great honor uh, to have the senator thank me personally. Uh, and, uh, you know, the thing is, is like, I didn't go out planning to do that. Uh, it, it was never crossed my mind. It was just something that came up in the, in the moment. Uh, I began to see the pattern. So I positioned myself in a way to, to be a best of use and best help that I could. And then, uh, Senator Paul was there and it just, uh, it just became a big story. And, you know, with everything that I'm doing, it's just, it blows my mind how I started writing about and learning about this shit because of my divorce. I pull on one thread, I keep pulling on it all the way. And it leads me to being on the street with Rand Paul and like, you know, just all these, all these things are now the national conversation. It's just uh, never, uh, I'm still not over that. It just blows my mind, kind of. He's still riding it too. You know, he's still riding the lightning. It's not, oh yeah, it's not slowing down, man. No, it's not going to, uh-uh. You know, what's what I really like about that, and this is something I tell all the boys I coach with baseball, is that the pros, you know, they don't get lucky bounces. They position themselves to where that ball is going to go in, in their favor. Yeah. You know, you didn't get a lucky bounce. You didn't accidentally find – like, you took the actions. And you're, you're a humble enough man to not say that, but you knew what needed to be done and you did it. And it, it's not, you know, for clout. Or, it's the right thing to do, and you did yeah. it. And it, yeah. it's cool. Like, I love reading stuff like when my friends do great things. I'm like, I know that guy like that. Like that dude is legit off camera, off screen, no mic. You know, he's the same dude and is the kind of dude who whatever you need, he'll be there, you know, when you need him. And that's, it's cool to see the world seeing that. And I see a lot more of these normal dudes just stepping up and doing the right thing. And that's, I, I kind of wanted to finish that on the high note, you know, Democrats deplorable, you know, there is a way to go, you know, from being on the, in the stands, watching the guys in the arena to entering the arena, joining the fight and doing what's right. And sometimes it's as simple as just doing what's right in that moment. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to have your own blog or podcast. You know, if you're just, you know, I'm just a normal dad. So are we, (laughs) we we happen to talk to a microphone for a job, but we're just, we're just family men, you know, who know what right is. So Jack, I want to thank you for all the time. I mean, over an hour of your day to sit and just chat with me. I appreciate that. My pleasure. For My people. pleasure, Zach. Anything for you, dude. Anything for you. And, and, and I really appreciate, you know, guys who are listening, you know, Zach and I met in person a few years ago. And then 
Zach and his son came to watch my son play in the Little League World Series last summer in Connecticut. And so there I am. My son is in the Little League World Series. He is up to bat in the bottom of the last inning with two outs and two runners on, and they're down. And he's down to his last swing. And I'm there, like one of the biggest moments of my son's life, one of the biggest moments for me, my boy, Zach, and his son and his friend are there. We're all together. And my son hits a home run, game-winning walk-off home run in the Little League World Series on ESPN, the whole thing. My boy, Zach, is there with me. He sees my experience. We all experience it together. We're both smiling now because it was such an amazing thing. I just got chills, man. <laughs> yeah, it was so incredible. And, uh, you know, so Zach, Zach knows me and, and I know him. We've been, we've been at this for a while. And so when you say, sir, Zach, when you say that I'm the same on camera as I am off camera and whatever, and there's like coherence between me as an individual, just Jack, and then like my online life, I really appreciate that because it's true. And I try very hard to be the same person all the time because it's that authentic authenticity, uh, that makes us so that people don't forget that we are just dudes. <laughs> we are just dudes that happen to have people follow us on Twitter and whatever. Uh, but it's really just about being a dad and having friends that are dads and kids and sharing things together like that. So thank you, Zach, for coming down, making the drive from Rhode Island to see us that day. It was awesome. I'll never forget it. You will always be a part of that memory, which is one of the highlights of, uh, you know, my son's life and will be forever. You know, it's, there will be different amazing things, but that will always be a highlight. And uh, dude, I'm, I'm pleased that you were there for that and that you were still here along this ride together, bro. So thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. No, absolutely. It's obviously, it's one of those things, you know, you can't write that shit that you don't write that in a movie, you know, that just played out like unbelievably. Yeah. All right. For those who want to connect, they want to check out Liminal Order. They want to talk to you about your book before they order it, which there will be a link below. How should they reach out? What's the best way to contact you? Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, Twitter is my main source. So at Jack Murphy Live on Twitter, uh, but I'm also on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Jack Murphy Live there. You can go to the website, jackmurphylive.com. If you want to learn about the liminal order, go down there to liminal-order.com and check it out. Um, a lot of information on the site about what we do. So uh, that's the best way. But give me a follow on Twitter. Send me a DM there, Jack Murphy Live. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. This has been another episode on the Family Alpha Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can join our private men's-only community at thefraternityofexcellence.com. And don't forget to find Zach on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at ZachSmall underscore.